Whatever your thoughts about human rights as a political issue, the fact is that businesses are facing increasing scrutiny and pressure to improve workers' rights and working conditions. The US, the EU, Japan, Australia, even China are taking a good close look at imports and importers which have even a suggestion of human rights violations in their activities and their supply chains. And that is significant for Asia's exporters. Companies hoping they might stay under the radar of national regulators are taking a big risk. A growing number of concerned activists are now on constant watch. Take the case of the world's biggest exporter of disposable latex gloves, Malaysia's Top Glove. One of six glove companies which suffered punitive measures from the US because of their labor issues. And those issues came to light because of the diligence of just one man. What we're talking about here, Taymor, is very much the S of ESG. In many cases, business risk really comes to the fore when you're looking at social issues and particularly human rights in supply chains. And there are many companies and businesses in this region who actually are getting caught out by international regulations that they think don't necessarily apply to them in the countries in which they operate, and yet they're enforced on the border of countries that their products might be going to. This is happening in many of the demand countries, and when we look at Southeast Asia in particular, you have a lot of countries that are supplying to these Western markets, and they absolutely need to understand what is happening in their own premises, but also their supply chains, and particularly from a worker rights perspective. What's really interesting to me about this story is that sense that you just mentioned of companies thinking they can get away with it seems to be really prevalent. You know, in this case, the companies involved were in fact getting away with it because the audits and the regulatory systems and the checks and balances that have been put in to try and stop this stuff were completely ineffective in this case. What it took was actually individual shoestring journalism from people on the ground who had no part of this oversight in industry at all. So there's a great quote from The Diplomat that uh, was sent recently, and I'll read it out to you and we can put the link in the show notes. For now, it seems that the fragmented efforts by civil society organizations, including corporate watchdog groups, media investigations, and shoestring activists, remain the only independent monitors and public awareness raisers. Their budgets are far below the millions of dollars pocketed by the audit industry, but sometimes it takes just one person to initiate change. The Malaysia glove case is a textbook case of that. And I know of no better shoestring activist in this topic than Andy Hall. Andy, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. And, and like Darian said, you know, this, in this particular case, and we're talking about the biggest glove manufacturers in the world, latex glove manufacturers in the world, operating in plain sight, contrary to all the values and the regulations that they should have been done. And the audits weren't catching them. It took someone like you, this shoestring activist, as Darian put it, or as the diplomat put it, to bring this up. And, and it goes back way beyond that. That diplomat article was, was in 21. 2021, wasn't it? Whereas you, you, were, you were working on this from 2018, weren't you, Andy? Yeah, I, I was actually in uh, Malaysia doing some forced labor mapping for the electronics industry, which is an industry that is, uh, has quite improved 
you know, relatively more than, than other industries uh, when I came across this. Uh, and it was a, a really shocking experience. And actually, one of the things that actually made me get into the gloves issue was that at exactly the same time, uh, the, the UN General Assembly had just passed, a, well, there was a, a resolution that was passed by the Five Eyes, by the UK, US, Canada, New Zealand, and um, the UK, basically saying that they wanted to focus on, on preventing forced labor in their public procurement supply chains, and they wanted to focus on eth- ethical recruitment of migrant workers. Um, and this was happening at the same time as, as I uh, was in Malaysia, and, and it was actually a Diwali celebration I was taken to in a gloves factory, um, in Top Glove, actually. It's the, you know, they make one in four, probably four or five of the gloves around the world. And I was taken to a celebration there, and I came across this just absolutely appalling situation of migrant workers who fit pretty much all of the ILO indicators of forced labor. And, and it was a real shock for me to, to uncover that. And then in the weeks that followed, to just realize that this was a systemic issue, that social audits were not picking up. Um, and luckily, I had the, the networks with the media uh, at that time to, to really expose that. And that's when the journey began, which uh, obviously is, is carrying on until today. And, and that journey began with, a, with an article in Reuters, basically picked up on your work, but didn't really credit you with it, didn't mention it. But, and, and I guess to a certain extent, you were, you were trying to keep a low profile because of the potential political risk to your own person. But this was in December of 2018, where this stuff first began. So just tell me how you got it into Reuters and, and how that Reuters article and the subsequent action on the back of that really set the whole motion into place. Yeah, but actually, when I discovered this, uh, it was, you know, and it wasn't just um, gloves, it was also in the condoms industry. I, I actually found a condom factory that was uh, supplying to uh, Durex and um, many of the other big companies, including USAID, for instance. They were a big supplier of condoms for the for the um, USAID and um, UA, uh, AIDS, AIDS programs across the world. Uh, and, and when I found this problem, I, I kind of reached out to the civil society organizations and, 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 and people that I knew in Malaysia. And I realized really quickly that nothing was going to happen with these groups of people. They were working, again, they didn't really have any budget. Malaysia is quite a developed country. They don't get as much funding as others. But also their capacity was really low because they focused on human rights issues and not linking at those with the business, you know, business human rights issues. And I, and I realized it was impossible to build a big coalition to really launch this internationally. And, and because the situation was so poor, uh, I decided very much that it was going to be me and the media that was going to expose this. And, and so uh, because I've worked very closely with the media, within three or four weeks, I had Reuters and The Guardian and the ABC uh, on the ground in Malaysia. And it was very easy because there was just so, such a terrible situation. It was so prevalent. And we managed to get the, the headlines. And it was really then that people started to reflect on, on what had gone wrong. And I think one of the big issues that people started to focus on was, was, was how this was missed. And, and then we realized that about a decade of social auditing had not detected what I had managed to detect essentially in, in five minutes by speaking to a few workers at a Diwali um, celebration, which was that there was systemic forced labor in the Malaysian gloves industry that was providing gloves for the whole world, both the public and the private sector. Eddie, could you talk a little bit about how you actually get this information? Because I know that you have different methods to a lot of NGOs or audit firms, for example. So how do you understand what's actually happening on the ground? 
But it's actually really, really difficult, and people don't understand the, the the difficulty in actually getting workers to trust you and and to speak to you, and and it was really frustrating in Malaysia also because I reached out to many of the civil society organisations who were very reactive. They didn't go to the field and meet migrant workers, and they didn't make attempts to go out and find the issues. And so, when I went to Malaysia, I essentially spent days, weeks in the streets, outside mosques and temples, and and churches, and going to community activities, and and in the sun, in the rain, um, standing outside workers' accommodation, going to Nepali and Bangladeshi coffee shops and restaurants. And I essentially just went out there and, and tried to meet the workers. And, and in this case, in terms of the gloves industry, it was actually the connections with remittance agents. So I managed to make friends with some remittance agents who are really trusted, I guess, by the migrant community because they use a hundi system for sending money illegally, often back to their home countries. And they have a lot of trust in these remittance agents who send the money. And so, because these remittance agents had the trust of the communities, when I went to meet with the communities, they were very relaxed. And, and so. When I approached them and started to ask questions about about their work conditions, they were really honest and 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 they felt that the, they they felt comfortable in the in the environment they that they were in, and that's really different to when somebody is approached by some very educated, often well dressed auditors, many many times foreign, many times speaking a language which is not a language they understand, a very formal language, and and most of these audits take place within the four walls of a workplace, so. The way in which I engage the workers is just so different to your standard social compliance auditor and the way they would approach the situation. Just tell me what your thoughts are on the auditing process, the people that do it, and is it fit for purpose? I still believe that audits have a role to play, even though so many of my peers in in, in the industry really really don't, you know, and they're so cynical because you know in so many parts of the world there is no civil society, there are no unions. There are no other ways for workers to have their voice heard than if somebody goes into the factory or, or the workplace and, and, and speaks to them. So I do believe that there's a role for social audits, but they have to be made fit for purpose. And what that means is that, you know, sometimes the methodology needs to be adapted. Like, for instance, with the Malaysian recruitment fees issue, auditors were asking, how much did you pay in recruitment fees in Malaysia for your jobs? And the workers used to respond, well, we paid nothing. The reason they paid nothing is because they paid all the money in their home countries. So sometimes the actual frameworks of the audits are not fit for purpose but you know they've improved a lot and to give credit to some of the audit companies in response to this gloves industry in response to the Rana Plaza incident for instance in Bangladesh when a factory that was you know certified with audit standards collapsed and thousands of people died the audit industry has reflected and tried to improve itself but I would say that you know there's still a lot more that needs to be done and also we need to look at who's paying for the audits because we know that the, the social compliance industry is embroiled with this systemic corruption where we see auditors being bribed to not report the truth and we also see auditors incentivized to to give better reports because they want to keep the business of the customers that, that are paying them so that there's so many areas that need to be improved but I do believe that there is a role for social audits but in a very um, enhanced form. But Andy I worked for the NHS in the early 2000s and I had started to look into what we now call ethical recruitment and issues around the factory conditions for medical equipment being sent to the NHS, it never really got traction. Why do you think in 2018, 2019, this story started to get traction? But it's funny you should mention the NHS, just, uh, you know, just to answer part of your question. It, 
we and myself uh, and, and, and friends in the UK, we had to take the UK government to court in 2021 because even after the US had sanctioned many of these companies for forced labor, the NHS was still putting them on a priority list of uh, contractors uh, for tender. So even with all of this stuff, the NHS didn't take any action. It was only when we took them to court and the court ruled um, as, part of a, um, as part of a settlement that they, that they had to take these issues into consideration that they started to do so. Um, but also in terms of public procurement, at the end of the day, and one of the things that I find so frustrating as an activist, uh, both in the public sector and the private sector, is that price matters. Um, and, and at the end of the day, these global buyers, these global brands talk so much about the you know, ESG, about social issues, forced labor issues, labor issues, migration issues, migrant worker issues. They talk so much about these issues and they try to impose on their suppliers that they comply with these issues, that they improve the standards for the workers, but they're not willing to pay the money. And particularly, I can remember the head of sustainability for a very large retailer saying to me, the trouble with modern slavery is that it actually does make financial sense. No, I think I think that's a really important point. And I think what you said is true, that forced labor and, and modern slavery, it really does make business sense. And, and I think we see it in industries time and time again. Where is the money coming from to pay the workers a, a living wage? And it just isn't happening. Many of the workers are silenced. You know, they don't have a voice in many parts of the world, especially where I work. There's almost no civil society. There's no trade unions representing the the people that need uh, the support the most. The audits are not working. They're not picking up the workers' voice. The workers suffering. And and because of that, it does make business sense. And of course, we know now, for instance, from Malaysia, from looking at, for instance, the Atta case where Dyson pulled out of uh, sourcing from Malaysia. We know that now uh, forced labour exposes they can really make significant financial impact on companies. And so we're now seeing, you know, and this is a kind of a, a positive thing, uh, um, we are seeing that some investors and some companies really are starting to realize that there can be huge financial implications if forced labor is discovered in their supply chain. And because of that risk... Well, um, then we, I mean, we've already seen that, haven't we? I mean, in, in this particular case of the glove industry, those manufacturers are being forced now to pay millions of dollars to the workers in recompense, right? It, it was an interesting situation because it was during the COVID pandemic. So it was a, it was a, it was a supplier's market. So the suppliers controlled everything and everyone was desperate for gloves. And so, you know, the financial impact on these companies was really quite minimal, as was, you know, the reputational impact was probably more. But, you know, also the, the people that paid that money back to the workers, and we're talking about an estimated $150 million that was paid back to workers in the Malaysian gloves industry. From my understanding, 99.9% of that money came from the suppliers. It didn't come from the buyers. It didn't come from the brands who have profited from that forced labor for many years. And so we still see this unfair focus of, of putting the burden on the suppliers. I mean, and, and then the workers were only ever compensated the recruitment fees that they paid sometimes up to 10 years ago they weren't compensated for the for the situations of modern slavery for the isolation for the awful accommodation they didn't have passports they couldn't move they were having deductions from their salary for for food that was terrible and that they weren't eating the fact that they were being forced to work excessive overtime the fact they were being harassed they were never compensated for any of that and that was something and that's why we've taken the case in the US um, against Kimberly Clark and Ansel to try to say look you were enriched by this process. It's not enough that you just tell your suppliers to give the workers their recruitment fees back. We need brands, we need buyers, and we need investors to also be responsible for, for what's happening. We, we've also got 
the government involvement in this as well, haven't we? Because the CBP, the, the, the US regulators, were just basically stopping any supply coming in from Malaysia on the back of these reports. And so the damage to the manufacturer and the people who were exploiting the workers does come through at some point, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the government, the, the CPB is, is, a, is a strange creature in many ways, you know, like, um, I think, yeah, at the time, it was useful to use that mechanism because there was no risk to the workers, right? I mean, if if the US and certain US companies stopped sourcing from Malaysia, Malaysia would just sell the gloves to another jurisdiction. And we saw that happening. You know, the gloves were going more to Australia, to the EU, to Japan, Korea. So there was no risk, you know, but the, the, it's quite difficult to use these mechanisms at the best of times because the US CPB, actually, it doesn't require remediation um, of workers. It just requires that there's no ILO indicators of forced labor present in a workplace that's been sanctioned. So as long as the company uh, eradicates those indicators of forced labor, then they're allowed to export to the US. Um, and in this case, in order to eradicate the indicators of forced labor, they had to eradicate one that is debt bondage. And so in order to eradicate the ILO indicator of forced labor that is debt bondage, they had to pay the workers back the money. But they didn't have to pay the workers back the, 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 the salaries that they didn't give them in the past and the unlawful deductions and things like that. So, I mean, it's it's a useful tool, but you have to use it very, very carefully. And, and of course, we're now seeing the introduction of these kind of tools um, in, in, in the EU also. They're now debating a, a regulation on forced labor, which is likely to be passed at the beginning of next year. So I think the governments have an important role. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we all know that it is really the private sector and the investors that have the leverage and the power to make change. It, it, uh, the governments can set up some good regulatory mechanisms, but really it, it is the private sector and the investors that really that really have the leverage to, to make these, these changes. So I can see what the US did with the Trade and Tariffs Act and getting Customs and Border Protection, CBP, to enforce this rule. It did actually change the way businesses, and certainly businesses I worked with, had to investigate the prevalence of forced labor in supply chains. And I think it's very interesting that the Trade Facilitation and Enforcement Act came out of a change to the 1930s Tariffs Act in the US, which was what was called closing the consumptive demand loophole. And Andy, I know you know all about this, but maybe just for our listeners, you know, the idea had been that you couldn't import goods into the United States unless there was a demand that it couldn't be supplied elsewhere uh, without uh, forced labor. And so it opened a loophole for prison labor and forced labor and goods to be imported into the US. And that loophole was closed. And yet then we had the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and there literally was a consumptive demand all over the world for personal protective equipment. And so, as you said, uh, you know, the National Health Service, many different medical services, companies all around the world said, essentially, we don't care what the conditions are. We need those gloves now. I mean, don't you think that consumptive demand played a very interesting role in how the Malaysian gloves issue played out? I, th I think so also because we had this extraordinary letter from the EU ambassador to Malaysia, you know, during the pandemic, recommending to the Malaysian industry that the, they would support them to operate 24-7, you know. Yeah. Um, and there was not one mention in that letter 
of labor rights or social welfare issues, even though the ILO is uh, being funded by the, the EU to do massive programs in, in Malaysia. So we really see the hypocrisy um, of that situation. Um, but yeah, I agree that when, when, it, when they actually imposed the first sanctions on a glove maker, when the pandemic started, because the gloves from that company were actually really important for US hospitals, they immediately lifted the, the sanctions on that, on that first company that was, uh, that was uh, banned from exporting into the US. US. And yeah, it was very extraordinary that they were doing that. But at the same time, uh, I don't think it ever had any serious impact on their ability to get gloves, to be honest, because there were so many um, other options for them. But the fact they were willing to do it was really important. It just seems to me that despite what Darian said about seeing an impact on company behavior and company attitudes as a consequence of some of this, it just, from what you're saying, Andy, it seems as if there is still not enough motivation for companies to actually take this particularly seriously. The audit industry still presumably has its problems. The loopholes that you've just described and the ways that they can wiggle out of real responsibility all seem to be available. Uh, and, the, and the regulatory mechanisms also seem to be subject to things like COVID and changing conditions. So for a, a company that is sitting there looking at its Asian supply chain, I'm, I'm, the question that comes into my mind is, is there still much more upside for them to ignore the rules than to than to abide by the rules. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think actually, when you look at the US Customs and Border Protection, Department of Homeland Securities, they have so many options available to them uh, for taking action against the uh, companies. You know, they can, they can uh, imprison the owners or the directors of, of, of US-based companies. They can prevent companies from being able to bid in public procurement contracts. They can fine the companies. And we don't see that happening. What we see the US CPB doing is banning goods from overseas suppliers. We don't see the CPB taking any action against the brands and the buyers that are based in the US. And I mean, I'm working on some, some things at the moment that might well change that situation. But until we see more companies and shareholders and, and investors and directors and owners of companies actually in the dock, actually in prison, actually feeling the consequences of these regressions on them, their personal their everyday life. I think there's always going to be a, a challenge in enforcing this. The media also have a part to play in, in exposing, for instance, what we call the, the, the poor buying practices of these uh, global companies and brands and also the, the poor investment practices of investors because it is these poor buying practices, these poor purchases purchasing practices, these poor investment practices that really lead to this happening. And often we only expose the, the end the end of the chain, you know, the, the, the gloves makers in Malaysia or the garment factories in Bangladesh, you know, as the people that are abusing. But we really need to turn the tables and focus more on the investors and the buyers and the brands because they are really the ones with leverage to bring But change. that's my point. Are we, are we actually doing that? I mean, Darian, you, you, you said the companies are responding. Do you, do you see real meaningful change going on? Yes, I, I do. In industries where there has been a spotlight shone, so we've been talking about the Malaysian glove sector, uh, I used to work in the Thai seafood sector, and you mentioned the electronics sector, where the spotlight has been shone, you do see some real change. But the trouble is it's only ever on usually one country, one industry at a time, and it's occurring in many countries and many industries. So we need a lot more spotlights. I mean, maybe, Andy, if you could tell us a little bit more about how investors should be involved, because I would say having recently worked more with the financial sector, 
It has even less prevalence, uh, the issues around forced labor, human trafficking, modern slavery, has even less relevance within the financial sector than you find in the commercial sector. So how do you work with investors and what would you suggest that they should be looking for and how could they do something beyond what they're currently doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a real challenge. I was I met with a lady the other day who was working for an investment company and I told her about um, the fact that, you know, what I was focusing on and the fact that I was trying to work with investors. And, and she laughed, you know, and she said, well, human beings are the last things that we take into account when we're, we're, we're in our everyday work, you know. Um, it's the last thing we want to think about as, a, as investors, you know. Um, and I was quite active with the EMS, with electronics-related sector in Malaysia. And when I was speaking out against this sector, I, we saw share prices sometimes, you know, a company would lose 20 or 30% of its share value after I was making a comment. Um, and we saw some companies really badly damaged um, and some supply chains really um, inconvenienced by the work I was doing. And that was what grabbed the investors' attention because they felt that there was some risk. Uh, and I think that's really sad, you know, that it's only when there is risk, really strong risk to their profits and their investments that but they kind of wake up. it speaks to the whole topic of risky business. This is a business risk that not enough exactly. companies and, and or investors are paying attention to. I mean, it's like, you know, when, when this ATA thing happened in Malaysia, I was just overwhelmed. Um, with investors and with other people contacting me, wanting to speak, wanting to know what my next focus was. And at the time, I was really cooperative. And, and I felt like, you know, this is so important that these investors are coming on board, that they're going to help me with my work. But actually, I realized very shortly afterwards that it wasn't about helping me with my work. It was about protecting their investments. Um, and it's like, you know, as we've moved on from that, even now I try to engage investors. And because it's not in the spotlight, because these issues are not, you know, they, they, they don't see them as a big risk at the moment, their interest in, 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 in focusing on things just, just falls away. It's like I was engaging with an investor recently um, and they said, well, now we're busy with this, the, the economic situation in China or we're, we're busy with these issues, so we'll get back to this later. So it really is, uh, you need to keep shining the spotlight on this issue. You need to keep pushing. Um, and I think it is, it is very difficult to work with investors. We do see some initiatives, for instance, in the UK, they have the find it, fix it uh, me mechanism. And we do see some other investor coalitions that are looking on this uh, into these issues but but also with those investor coalitions I've engaged with them on a number of occasions and I found the the engagements to be really unsatisfactory in terms of the material um, results that they bring because investors are just so slow um, to act unless they feel there's a, there's a there's a risk to their investment but what class of investor are you talking about here I mean there are obviously various different routes and different types of investment and investor who are the ones that we should be focusing on and did you see any value being provided in this context? by all these new impact and ESG-focused invest investment vehicles that are coming out now? I'm not the expert on investors and, and financial markets because it's really something that is really distant from, from the work that I'm doing as much as I try to understand. But, you know, most of the time when, when, when we hear about these these startups and, and these different kinds of investors, they're, they're not focusing on the human beings, you know. They're focusing on the humans as part of, you know, how can we maximize the ability to access all of the suffering and the grievances in a very simple computer program or something like that, you know. They, they take a big step away from, from, from the humanity of the situation. And, you know, it's like with, you know, with this mandatory human rights due diligence issues in, in Europe now and, and across the world, I, you know, I've said to Darian and I've said to many people, I don't see 
more companies contacting me for advice or to get my opinion on, on things like this. It seems that they're contacting more these um, sustainability experts and, and social compliance experts and so-called forced labor experts. It seems to me that they're contacting the wrong people. Um, and, and a lot of these investors and a lot of these startups and, and things like that, they seem to me that they're not actually getting to the source of the problem. And, and so they're trying to find solutions without understanding the source of the problem. And the only way you can understand the source of the problem is to go to the ground and really try to understand. It's not something you can get from a meeting room or from a, a PhD or a degree or something like that. You really need to go to the ground and understand the victims and their situations and the people who are supporting them. And you need to build your solutions from a proper understanding of the problem. So I think that is a perfect summary of what companies should be doing and that we do need to take a more human-centered approach the other thing I wanted to pick up on, Darian, with you, how does the investment theme play into the kind of conversations that you have with CEOs and, and with, with corporate leaders on this? I think it's still relatively nascent looking at a human rights perspective from an investment view. It's understood when there's reputational risk, and Andy mentioned about share prices dropping, so investors are concerned about that. The companies that they're investing in definitely should be continuing to perform financially, but I don't think there's really the mechanisms at the moment for investors to go into the depth of understanding that's required of what's happening in these companies and their supply chains. So I hope it's something that continues to develop and emerge, particularly with human rights due diligence frameworks becoming more prevalent around the world. We talked a little bit earlier on about how for many companies, avoiding the problem will still seem to be the more attractive route rather than getting knuckling under and adopting the regulations and doing the necessary work. So if a business was listening to this podcast, Andy, what would you say their first step should be to make sure that they don't have forced labor in their operations or supply chains? Like, What are some of the practical things that people could do? I mean, I think many businesses, they don't have a transparency or traceability in their supply chains to start with, you know, so they have to know where they're sourcing from. They have to have trans trans uh, transparency. They have to have traceability. They have to know, you know, where, where they're sourcing from in order to understand the risks. They need to look at the risks. And again, risks is not something that you get from a computer program or from an expert sitting in Geneva or London or New York. You know, the risks that, for instance, the newspapers, you know, report abuses in Malaysia. Now Malaysia is, is the highest risk country in the world for forced labor or something like that. It's not a genuine risk. So you have to have the traceability, transparency in your supply chains. You need to understand where is the real risk, you know, not the reported risk, but the real risk. And then you have to start to understand how that risk, you know, is brought about. And then you have to try to find the solutions based on a real understanding. And it's fair enough for companies to have all of these policies and practices and risk assessments, but they really need to also look at their buying practices and, and how that contributes to, to these risks arising in the first place. Can I ask you the question on how you were funded? As you know, there are rumors that you get are on the take from different companies, which I don't think to be true. So... 
Yeah, of course, it, it's important. And, you know, I, I, was off, I was on an investor call uh, after this scandal in Malaysia, and one of the investors said to me, you know, can you tell us a bit more about your business strategy? Uh, and I said, well, I don't have a business strategy, unfortunately, as you can probably see. And so I do uh, quite a few different private sector consultancies. I work um, for One Gloves Company in Malaysia, now a very small company. Um, I, I, as an advisor, I work for a very large conglomerate in Thailand. Uh, I work for two uh, palm oil companies. I'm doing a project with investors. So I have income from those projects and I use those that, that income in order to fund, uh, uh, as, as you say, like this uh, shoestring um, activists uh, across the region. And I, I work with those people and I support them and, 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 and ensure that they have enough resources to, to do the work that, that we need for our campaigning. Um, they, they don't need massive amounts of money and, and money is not, is not the issue here. Um, money sometimes really confuses things. Um, but, you know, I have enough income to be able to do this work. And, and again, 95% of my work on a day-to-day -day basis is voluntary work. But I do do uh, private sector work, and, and that's something that I try to be very transparent about. And I believe that I have a better understanding than most people in this area. Uh, and, and if I'm not going to share that information with companies and brands and investors, it, it's a real waste because they're the ones that need to know and that have the leverage to, to make a difference. That was a really fascinating conversation, Darian, I think, because it's rare to talk to someone in this field who is so very much hands-on. You know, we keep going to these conferences and have these conversations, uh, and it, it's all talk in, in conference rooms, whereas for Andy, it's talk in cafes and, you know, in factory environments. And he's, he's really doing meaningful work, if you like, uh, with his bare hands rather than people like me who just talk and write about these things. He absolutely is. And I always value Andy's perspective because he does speak to the migrant workers. He goes to where they are. He has the genuine conversations. He's not reading a report about it. He's not applying some particular framework. He genuinely has conversation and dialogue-based investigation. And he knows many of these people personally. And so if I hear from him that something is happening, I certainly do give it a certain amount of credibility. But then there are plenty who don't give his work credibility because it is so conversation-based. Yeah, there's also plenty of people who regard him as, as outright dangerous, aren't they? I mean, not only the people whose businesses he is disrupting by doing this investigative work, uh, but, but a whole other bunch of people who, who seem to, to consider him perhaps to be insidious or an agent of some insidious power. You made a comment within that conversation about how he is, to some extent, under investigation. Tell me a bit more about that. So I spoke to a journalist last year who was writing an article about Andy, particularly stemming from his investigation into the gloves industry in Malaysia. And many think that Andy is on the take or getting paid to do his activism. And certainly from my years of knowing Andy, he actually makes very little money out of this. He does it because he's passionate and he has really a purpose in life. He wants to make sure that people are treated well and particularly migrant workers are treated well and there's no end of work to do that. But many can't believe that he is doing it from the goodness of his heart or out of his own interest. They think there's some large payment system going on behind there and so there was a journalist who was doing a proper investigative piece into Andy and how he works and 
you know, what impact he was having. Um, I haven't seen the outcome of that article yet, but certainly I'll be looking out for it. Yeah, but it does. Um, you know, I'll get back in touch with Andy and, and put it directly to him. I mean, you mentioned to him in that conversation briefly and he answered your question, but we can maybe dig into the, the real nitty gritty of all those accusations when and if that article comes out. Sounds good. All right. So talk to you next time. Thanks, Kamal. Thank you.